guys from the BJSM community. It's a real pleasure to be with Joe Gibson. She's really well known in the shoulder space. She runs very, very successful courses and her expertise is in shoulder instability and particularly in the rehabilitation of those patients with a view to getting them back to sport successfully and quicker. Joe, thanks a lot for making the time. You're very welcome. It's an honour to be on the podcast. Thanks for asking. Let's go into a case where you've got a football player who's 23 years old, has had several dislocations because of trauma falling on the on the shoulder in the first instance, and they actually have had surgery, and you see them. What are the things you look for in your assessment and, and talk to in the setup phase before we get into the specific rehab of the post-surgical shoulder? Okay, so um, there's several things you said there that are all very already very important in terms of how I approach my assessment. One, the fact that they've had recurrent dislocations. I know that that's got a bigger association with post-surgical failure, um, and there's no doubt the longer the time from the first ever traumatic dislocation, again, there seems to be some consequences for proprioception and muscle control that I need to take into consideration. But probably the most important investment of my time, the first time I meet a player, um, if I've not been fortunate enough to meet them preoperatively, is actually understanding um, their their feeling and their experience thus far and their understanding of what's happened. Because what's increasingly clear from, from the evidence and, and certainly borne out in my experience is, is one of the biggest factors in whether a player gets back to their previous level of performance is what they've been told by health professionals, um, the context of the original dislocation that they had, um, and certainly also the sort of response of coaches and family and people around them. So the sort of physical side of things clearly is important, but the most important thing for me initially is to understand that psychological aspect. The, the other knock-on for that, there's some quite exciting research come out um, in the sort of FMRI, FMRI research that's also shown that if an athlete has um, a, an acute traumatic dislocation, the context that that happens in, so for example, if this was an athlete who perhaps hadn't been performing quite so well, there was some query about his contract, there was somebody else uh, competing for his place, and then he had a coach that was particularly negative about that instance. Um, there's some nice evidence now showing that, that that apprehension, the processing of that feeling of apprehension in the brain in that kind of situation can move into the emotive centres of the brain. And certainly there's been situations where athletes have rehabbed really well, gone back to sport, but still felt apprehensive and lacked confidence. And actually what this, you can get to a point where actually the surgeon will rescope because the athlete's so convinced it still feels unstable and they'll find nothing the repair will be absolutely pristine and actually that feeling of apprehension totally relates to this sort of emotive process and change in processing so all understanding the psychological backdrop and the social network and and that athlete's understanding is really important and clearly also core to that is their expectation in terms of how long the rehab process is going to take and and where they want to get back to so so certainly that initial investment is in the talk and well not so much talk listening I'm much quieter these days I realize I've got to find the information and understand the team around them um, and then obviously I'd sort of launch into my more physical examination. So ideally do you like to see the patient before they've had their surgery and how often does that happen and what do you talk to them about in that first appointment how long does it go for? 
So I, I can't think of a situation, particularly with the athlete, the elite athlete population, that I wouldn't see them before their surgery. Um, and we, wherever we can, I actually see them with the surgeon that's operating at that first appointment and the club physiotherapist, because I think one of the things that's absolutely key is there's a sort of consistency and congruency of both information and language that's used with the athlete. Um, and also, you know, again, particularly with the case that you've used as an example, I'm, I'm not just interested in the shoulder and the consequences in terms of proprioception. I'm also interested in the rest of, of the body. And I have to say, in terms of a lot of the problem solving that I do, sometimes that, that first interaction is pivotal in terms of resetting somebody's expectations, but also addressing some of their fears and anxiety around the injury and the consequence for them in sport. There's very good evidence that that initial sort of consultation, but also the trust they have in me has a big influence then on how well they rehab. And so you take time to listen to what the player tells you they've heard so far, and then you build off that. Absolutely. So I, I guess my two messages whenever I talk about communication is the first thing to do is check their understanding of what they've been told so far. And when I finish the consultation, I will ask them to explain to me what they think I've told them. And most of the time, hopefully they'll tell me what I think they've to- I've told them too. And did you pick up some of that in your Masters in Advanced Practice or is this stuff you've learned post your formal education? Um, the, the basic skills are very simple. Um, that we need to use the patient's language, not our own, and to understand that language has both placebo and nocebo effects. And so language that can be very um, non-threatening and and inane to us because it's our comfort blanket in our everyday actually can have quite profound effects on somebody's pain experience, but also their engagement with the rehabilitation process. And actually, I think the other thing, because my actual dissertation at the end of the day was about the biopsychosocial model and how very much it's been lost in translation since its original inception. And I think that's because, again, perhaps because we don't have the basic training. Um, If we look at the, you know, the real premise of the biopsychosocial model with not that we should identify these social psychosocial factors that then stop us being able to get people better. It was very much framed as a communication tool that if you listen to a patient's story and acknowledge those psychosocial factors, sure, in some patients they may be prohibitive and something they need additional help with, but actually the communication research is pretty clear that if you just acknowledge those things, so for example, I have a patient who comes in and hates a job, hates a husband, just is generally pretty cheesed off with life. If I reflect those things back to her or, or your athlete example, you know, who feels he's been treated badly by the club. If I acknowledge those things, actually it, the evidence would suggest that that puts the patient in a far better place to then engage with the rehab process. And I think that in itself for me was very empowering, understanding I didn't have to solve all the patient's psychosocial issues. But just by acknowledging them, I put that that patient or athlete in a place where they were more likely to engage with me and do everything that I asked them to do. So in terms of, I guess, the three key points is listen more and and don't underestimate the power of your nonverbals. But just reflect a little bit on the language that you use and wherever you can try and frame anything that you say within the patient's language, not your own. Fantastic, Joe. Thanks. And it's clearly absolutely relevant to getting patients better with their shoulder pain. So I'm delighted that you've shared that with us. And 
I'm sure people who attend your workshops and conferences are dying to hear more of that as well. So let's move to the rehab itself, though. And can you tell us three or four pitfalls you consistently find when you're teaching? So I, I, one, of, one of my big passions is considering the shoulder in the context of the rest of the kinetic chain. And I think that whilst I think that everybody does that, my experience is it's quite a new concept to a lot of the people that come on the course. And to be fair, I think a lot of the evidence supporting this is in its infancy. But for me, with an athlete that's going back to play, there is absolutely no doubt that there is good evidence in the literature now showing that often in things like contact sports or throwing sports, performance correlate correlates of the upper limb um, are very highly correlated with lower quadrant performance and so there's this one there's this link to performance and injury with the kinetic chain in the shoulder but also in terms of, of the things we're seeing um, with more chronic presentation so this athlete would count as this having had a recurrent history and the changes in the brain I think in the motor learning literature there is good evidence that if we make rehab more um, dynamic, it lights up more of the cortex, so potentially has more potential to re-establish those normal motor pathways. Um, adding the kinetic chain actually reduces abnormal load on the shoulder and has been shown to facilitate load core recruitment of the cuff and the scapular muscles. So I, I think from my perspective, the kinetic chain and just including that and using that to initiate some of our more traditional shoulder exercises definitely gives more value. And in a post-operative group where we're trying to enhance proprioception, normalize input to the motor cortex, um, all the things that we know have potential association with poor outcomes, to me, it's a bit of a no-brainer. And I, would, I kind of use that concept, whatever shoulder problem that I'm treating. And can we drill down on that in terms of specific exercises I know it's not a recipe but just to give the listener an example of how you would engage the kinetic chain differently yeah absolutely so if I have somebody who's immediately post-op um, we get people mobilizing within two days post-surgery um, and some work done by a very good friend of mine uh, Tim Yule who works with Dr Kibler in Kentucky um, showed that if you initiated simple supported exercises of the upper limb um, then essentially that resulted in reduced activation levels around the upper quadrant. Um, but in more traditional exercises, just doing a shoulder press or doing external rotation, if you initiate that with a step up or a lunge or just an active step, again, that will have this, a similar effect. So it doesn't have to be horribly complicated. Um, literally, the important thing seems to be knee flexion extension or hip extension. Um, and that dynamic component. Joe, can you share the perspective of the time course and the progression of rehab post-operatively? Absolutely. So it's probably important to mention at the beginning of this that uh, we start mobilising patients two days post-operatively, and that will be within the safe zone um, that's been identified during surgery. So um, the, Joe De Beer, who's a surgeon in South Africa, showed many years ago that actually if you look at a, um, somebody's shoulder after they've had a stand-up 
standard bank art repair and take it through a full passive range of movement that actually there's only really tension on the suture anchors towards the end of rotation. So that really got me challenging why we were keeping people still. So essentially they'll start early supported mobilization. So we don't really talk about passive or active assisted. Um, we use the concept that we use the kinetic chain to initiate the exercises, but with the arm supported just to the point that they can do the exercise with minimal discomfort. And I, I, I'm cautious of saying a good movement pattern, but they just are moving well. Um, the other thing that we do very early on now um, that's perhaps something we've added in over the last couple of years is this concept of cross-education. So if you recall what I was talking about, apprehension and it moving into these emotive pathways in the brain, there's actually nice evidence underpinning the concept of cross-education where you just work the other arm at quite a high level. So again, early post-op, we will get the athletes working their opposite unoperated arm in the position of dislocation, um, either doing sort of high load isometrics or rhythmic stabilizations but again because this has been shown to light up the motor cortex but also have a strength increase effect on the operated arm um, the other vital inclusion very early post-op is closed chain exercises um, I think from a proprioceptive perspective, we're very good at considering things like joint position sense and kinesthesia, but perhaps the thing we don't give quite enough attention to is this concept of uh, force production sense. And certainly when an athlete's had symptoms or problems for longer than three months, I think there is good evidence that their force production sense is poor. And for me, that's a potential injury risk when they go back to play. So we also quite early in the process now get them doing um, force production matching tasks using pressure by feedback or force plates or whatever other tools that the different clubs might have. So... All that starts very early, and the only limitation really is it's in this protected arc, which is generally anterior to the scapular plane and below about 140 degrees of elevation. Clearly, that will depend on the size of the label tear, um, but that's why I you know, basically communicate very closely um, with my surgical colleague because he will work closely with me to know that we're using the maximum that we can, and clearly that's communicated with the club physios too. In terms of progression, we tend to use a criteria-based uh, progression rather than any time scales. Um, when we started with this approach, athletes were getting back to play um, on average about sort of five to six months, which was pretty standard in the literature, whereas now we find that with five-year follow-up, our athletes are getting back on average at about 11 weeks. And in fact, we've had several athletes get back at under eight weeks, which is a kind of scary. But the reality is that they have to meet very robust criteria to achieve that. So those key things that I talked about in terms of early mobilization, cross-education and closed chain exercises are all very dynamic. And then we just progress to do more specific strengthening um, and reactive work to make sure that the athlete is strong enough, robust enough, and their dynamic system reacts quickly enough in a way that's relevant to the sport that they do. So if you like, the, the key ingredients of those exercises are the same, but the load, the speed, um, the functional relevance will change according to the stage of rehab and their control. And what about if someone was further down the track, so looking at these criteria at maybe four weeks and then we'll have one near the end, what are some of the assessments you do at that stage? 
So at a four-week period, really, but by four to five weeks, we expect them to have almost full range of elevation, but just some residual restriction of external rotation in neutral and end range abduction. So at that stage, essentially, as long as... So I, there's a lot of um, controversy about the scapula and how relevant it is that we do use scapular congruence as one of our sort of visual measures so when they're doing an exercise we don't want to see unnecessary hitching and we don't want to see a loss of that scapular congruence because I kind of believe you know from a biomechanical point of view that suggests the loads is exceeding that that the upper quadrant can cope with um, but really pain and, and that are our guide and we just progress people accordingly so at this stage they would be doing external rotation into um outside the scapular plane because after that four week mark we can push on as long as they are pain free and we don't lose that scapular control and towards discharge what are some of the criteria then so there are three sort of key areas that we look at. There's the psychological readiness um, that we do use certain scores, but again, again, they seem to have a very good correlation with just asking the athlete whether their confidence go back or not. And certainly that's one of the biggest predictors of failure if they're not. Um, and then the other two key domains really are both the upper limb and then looking at the kinetic chain. So we use a a sort of quite a gambit of tests really and this is probably increased over time purely because we're collating data and, and looking at what gives us best value um, probably the most recognizable test that people will be familiar with will be things like um, the upper extremity wide balance test and the closed kinetic chain upper extremity stability test which seem to have good validity um, in the literature we also look at different positions where we measure the rotator cuff so lying in prone with the arm at 90 degrees, the elbow bent dangling over the side, that's the one place where the ratio of the cuff should be one-to-one. -one. So we test that there. And then we also look at them in the 90-90 position and look at not only strength compared to the other side, but also looking at just speed of reaction. But that's just done on a subjective basis. Um, the thing that we've started incorporating more recently, again, is using jump mats and force plates, looking at reaction time in a plyo push and comparing one side to the other. Um, but those are probably the, the, the key, most consistent upper limb measures that we use, um, together with the force production that we've already talked about. Um, but then in terms of the lower quadrants, again, we'll look at jump height and hop distance and hip strength, just looking at joint passive equals joint active, but also the side plank endurance test, um, which is something an Italian surgeon suggested to me once, but again, seems to have good correlation and we do a side to side comparison. So those are probably the most consistent measures that we use, but there's, there's other stuff we, we, we're looking at, but we haven't validated as yet. You've intimated a couple of times, Joe, about the importance of the brain and it's an exciting time because of Laura Mosley's work and Gwen Joel getting us back to the biopsychosocial model properly. Um, can you give the listener, you know, your 60 seconds take on the role of the brain in shoulder pain and why you're so excited about it? Absolutely, and uh, um, Lorimer and Gwen have obviously clearly been great driver, uh, influences of mine, but I, I guess... I'm always looking to do what I do better and I, I think in shoulder world we can be a bit complacent that perhaps we've got it sorted 
whereas the evidence would suggest that whilst we get people better, um, perhaps they don't stay better and actually it's with some compromise of function. And so the advent of fMRI has been exciting in a couple of ways. One, it shows us that we have this group of patients that have a predisposition to their pain processing moving into those emotive centres and that's where our communication becomes so important. But also both in this in the apprehension group that we've talked about, but also those patients who perhaps had symptoms of tendinopathy for longer than three to six months or have had a history of recurrent dislocations. We now have um, work from different authors showing us that that results in reorganization of the brain, that we get structural changes in the sensory motor cortex, but also that has a consequence in terms of the control of inhibition and excitation, and so fundamentally an impact on muscle recruitment and, and muscle activation. And so for me, that's exciting because that gives us huge opportunities in terms of how we can enhance our rehab approaches. And I guess I, I, I've been coined before as using the term brain rich, but really it's just looking at how we impact motor learning and influence that, that sort of neural plasticity, for want of a better term, to, to impact that that organization and that balance between inhibition and excitation and obviously Ebony's lovely work using a metronome has shown some impact on this but equally work that's looked at you know using music different sorts of cueing I think it's really exciting because we can still take the sort of basic exercises or approaches that we use but by making them more sensory rich whether that be auditory visual however that patient learns or responds best in the motor learning literature, that would suggest it's got much greater impact for re-establishing more optimal motor pathways and that sort of organisation of the cortex. So I think they're really exciting times and, and that's why I love my job because I never stop learning every day. Joe, that's absolutely fantastic. Thank you. And we will have to leave it there, but I'm going to ask you to share a couple of societies that um, younger physios could potentially join and you've been a leader in these. What do you suggest consider so the european of uh, shoulder and elbow so european society of shoulder and elbow rehabilitation is a society that's really close to my heart there's some fantastic people involved and they're really trying to promote excellence in shoulder rehabilitation and education across europe and we've now made great contacts with the american society as well so there's podcasts and webinars and all sorts of fantastic resources if you become a member there so, and the second society that I would definitely recommend is the British Elbow and Shoulder Society. Um, it's a society that basically is made up of both surgeons and physiotherapists and really, for me, cements what under my, underpins my practice, which is the importance of that close relationship in doing the best for patients. Um, the, they have an annual conference. Um, but there's also some fantastic resources on the website, and it's a great networking opportunity. Everybody's very supportive of new talent. Um, Peter Brownson, my surgical colleague, is the next president of BEST, and actually he and I were invited to the American Academy um, of uh, Arthroscopic Surgeons in North America in the last couple of weeks in Denver. Um, and it's testament to him because that's a surgical meeting and he insisted that a physiotherapist went with him because he really wanted to promote what BEST stands for. So I would wholly promote anybody interested in shoulders that that's a society to get involved in as well as you, sir. And I know the BEST meeting's coming out quite soon. Um, next year it's in Glasgow and again I'd go to the website to get the details because the dates haven't been confirmed as yet. 
Thanks so much, Joe. And to, for people who can follow you on Twitter, obviously, the handle there and your website for courses. Uh, my, my handle on Twitter is at shouldergeek1. I think that just shows my technological ignorance when I chose my handle. Um, and in terms of website, um, if you go to www.wkphysio.co.uk, that's the private practice that I work at and that has details of the courses. And very soon I'll also be live on liverpoolshoulderclinic.co.uk too. Fantastic, Joe. Great to chat today. I know we met at a conference a few years ago and it's been too long. I look forward to seeing you in person at a meeting soon and we'd love to get you to Vancouver for a course, in fact. Wonderful. I would very much love that. And that was Joe Gibson, one of the leading shoulder physios whose work in the unstable shoulder is not our only area of expertise but a great starting point. Thanks for joining this podcast today and I hope you get a chance to have a physically active day. Thanks, Joe.